You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The renowned Dutch artist Rembrandt is known for many things. But of particular interest to me are the many biblical scenes he painted. In fact, during his lifetime, he created over 300 works of art inspired by stories from the Bible. Most of these works were drawings and etchings, but he also completed around 60 paintings of biblical themes. Something else he did more than most artists was his habit of placing himself in paintings. For instance, there are two paintings of Rembrandt that depict Christ on the cross. One is called The Elevation of the Cross, and the other, The Descent from the Cross. Not surprisingly, the painting called The Elevation of the Cross depicts Jesus being raised up in crucifixion. And in this painting, you will find Near Jesus' nail-pierced feet, a a man wearing a blue beret. Francis Schaeffer referenced this painting in one of his books, and, and here's what he wrote. Rembrandt had flaws in his life, but he believed in the death of Christ for him personally. In fact, in his 1633 painting, Schaefer writes, The Elevation of the Cross, a man in a blue painter's beret raises Christ upon the cross. That man is Rembrandt himself. It's a self-portrait. This painting was a statement for all the world to see that his sins sent Christ to the cross. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that Rembrandt placed himself at the cross? He included himself as one who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. You see, Rembrandt did for himself what Peter does for all of us in Acts 2. We see this most clearly in the way Peter addresses his original audience, but it's, it's true for all of us. Through this Pentecost sermon, the Holy Spirit, by means of Peter, takes each of us and places us at the foot of the cross where we must see ourselves as participants in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is a sobering reality. But as we consider our participation in the death of Christ, we'll also see the benefit of his substitutionary death for all those who repent and believe. There's an observation I heard another pastor share, and it stuck with me. He said, the person of Christ depicted in the Gospels is gloriously attractive. I agree, but I don't think that's limited to the Gospels. I think it also applies to the portrait of Christ we will encounter this morning in Acts 2. So I could summarize what I want to do this morning from the text of Scripture as present to you Jesus as gloriously attractive. 
I want to persuade you from the text of Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's your only hope, which is exactly what Peter was aiming to do as well. His sermon has one dominant theme, one clear subject. It's the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. So look with me at verse 23, where we find the Messiah's death. Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you were here the last couple of weeks that we were in Acts, you understand the context for this sermon that Peter is preaching. But let me be absolutely clear the uninterrupted testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that God's eternal plan for the redemption of His people required and could be accomplished by no other means than the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. This is the witness of all the Gospel writers. Let me give you some examples. Mark 10, verse 45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We find it elsewhere as well. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus came to die, but his death was not an afterthought. It was not plan B. It was the predetermined and perfect plan of God. In fact, as clear as this is in Acts 2, it will be reiterated again in Acts 3 and then again in Acts chapter 4. Flip over there. Look at verses 23 through 28. Acts 4, 23 through 28. After Peter and John are arrested and have witnessed before the Sanhedrin with great boldness, the text says, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, don't ever allow yourself to begin to explain away the plain teaching of God's Word because it doesn't fit with modern sensibilities or man-made revisions of God. When, When you dismiss the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, it will lead you down a dangerous path to embracing a low view of sin, a cheap view of grace, an inflated view of yourself, and an anemic view of Jesus. You will turn God into nothing more than a cosmic bellhop who is functionally powerless, waiting to save sinners until they give him permission to do so. That is not what we find in God's Word. So I would plead with you, brothers and sisters, embrace what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign plan for the redemption of sinners. It is infinitely wonderful and eternally hopeful, and it is exceedingly practical. As you heard this morning, as John and Elaine shared with us, there there is perhaps no doctrine that is more practically helpful than the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. Of God. Acts 2 reveals the sovereign hand of God behind the crucifixion of Christ. Peter directs our gaze all the way back to eternity past. It was according to the predetermined plan of God. The Apostle Paul strikes the same note in Ephesians 1 and 2. He instructs us to look back as well. You see the eternal plan of God to offer Jesus as the sufficient substitute for sinners, thereby securing redemption of all the elect, shows in staggering detail the infinite depth of God's love for sinners. In fact, I want you to just listen. Just listen to the text in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in case and in case that doesn't 
blow you away enough? He circles back around in chapter 2 and reminds us again, but says it a different way, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If, if you fail to grasp or you dismiss Jesus' death as your substitute, as the eternal plan of God, everything else, friends, will start crumbling. It will affect your view of grace. It will affect your view of sin. It will affect your view of the triune God. So back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Notice that it not only reveals the sovereign plan of God, but it also makes clear the guilt, the culpability of sinful men. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, you, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, when we hear Peter place responsibility for Christ's death on those who were physically present when Jesus was crucified, we need to hear his words as extending to us as well. Because what does the prophet Isaiah say? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Friends, just as Peter confronted his audience with the seriousness of their sin and the guilt of their participation in the death of Jesus, we need to understand our guilt and our participation as well. In fact, this is a necessary part of declaring the gospel. I heard Mark Dever once say, the bad news... The bad news is what makes the good news so good. It is the sense of our sin, our wickedness before a holy God, the wrath we deserve. This is what drives us to repent and believe in Jesus. In fact, it's exactly what we find unfolding in our text. Look at verse 23 again. Okay, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter preaches Christ crucified. He brings attention to the sin of the people. Now look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The good news of Jesus is boldly declared. Sinners are confronted with the bad news of their sin and guilt. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and reveals the beauty of Christ, and sinners turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. You see, it's the death of Christ 
that points us to his love because we wonder why. Why did he have to die? And you cannot answer that question without pointing to his love. This is why Charles Spurgeon could say, my entire theology can be condensed into four words. Jesus died for me. This is the response of the people. When the Messiah is lifted up before them by Peter, they respond, Jesus died for me. Look with me now at the Messiah's resurrection. Beginning in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, as we've already seen, Peter uses the Old Testament scriptures to explain what is happening at Pentecost. The first reference is to Joel, where Peter makes it clear that what's happening with the outpouring of the Spirit is precisely what Joel foretold. But now we encounter a reference to David and the Psalms, specifically Psalm 16. Now, this reference to Psalm 16 is not being used in an attempt to prove the resurrection as an event but to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah because the grave could not hold him. So follow Peter's argument. Jesus was really murdered, therefore he really died. He was really buried because he was dead. But then verse 24, God raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, Death was powerless against Jesus. It could not hold him in the grave. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, the place of death actually gave way to life. So what does Psalm 16 have to do with this? Why don't, you, why don't you turn to Psalm 16, but keep your place in Acts 2. We'll flip back and forth. Psalm 16 celebrates the benefits of a life lived under the rule of God. It includes protection in verse 8. It includes hope. Verses 9 and 10. It includes joy in his presence. Verse 11. But Psalm 16 also speaks to something beyond David's own experience. So in his sermon, as Peter quotes David, he is setting up a comparison. David experienced the power, the presence and the protection of God. His confidence in the promises of God drove out fear. He knew that God would not abandon him, but would guide him and fill his life with gladness. And this would all culminate not simply with physical death and decay, as if that's the end, but rather his physical death would lead him into the presence of God where he would experience unending joy. Peter, back in Acts 2, 
uses David's prophetic words to essentially say what was true of David in part is true of Jesus in its fullness. So look at verse 29 of Acts 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In Psalm 16.10, David said, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So Peter, Peter points out that what David claimed was not true of his own experience. He did die. He was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. But here's the good news. What David explained in Psalm 16 points forward to the one greater than David. The one in David's line. It's a perfect description of what happened to Jesus. So, D.A. Carson writes, if what happened to Jesus fits what David prophesied in the psalm, then Jesus must be the Messiah. This is Peter's argument. God had promised a Davidic king who would rule and reign forever, but just as David died and was buried, so were all his descendants. But here, Peter announces, there is one from David's line. And as he looks at this gathered group in the face, he brings the puzzle pieces together. He tells them, even though you put this man called Jesus to death and sealed his body in a tomb, it was impossible for death to hold him. Why? Because he's the Messiah. And David's words in Psalm 16 were talking about the Messiah who would come to rescue his people from sin and death. He would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So look at verse 31. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The Messiah's death reveals his love, and his resurrection reveals his power. John brought it up this morning in Sunday school, but it bears repeating, this is not the Messiah they were looking for. And yet, this Messiah was better in every way. His power was not limited to one who could deliver them from an oppressive government, but his power was over sin and death, and he could deliver them from that. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This is what's happening here. This is what Peter is bringing their attention to. So let me just pause and make one point of application here. For the one here who is enslaved to sin, the very best thing that could possibly happen to you this morning is for you to see the power of the resurrected Christ and then throw yourself, poor and needy as you are, into his merciful arms. So don't simply hear 
and see and read this account, this testimony to the resurrected Messiah as a mere statement of historical fact. That just like his death, his resurrection is personal. So we've seen the Messiah's death, the Messiah's resurrection. Now look with me at the Messiah's rescue. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The people standing before Peter had seen the crucifixion. They had seen the empty tomb. And many had seen other convincing proofs of of Jesus' resurrection. So far in Peter's sermon, there has been one primary subject, and that is Jesus. But there have been two dominant themes, an explanation of the gift of the Holy Spirit and a declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. These two themes come together in verses 33 through 36. After Jesus is resurrected from the dead, before the outpouring of the Spirit, he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the Father. Verse 33. One theologian explains the significance of this and apologies in advance to all the lefties here this morning. But in the ancient world, the right hand was identified with greatness, strength, goodness, and divinity. In addition, Psalm 110, verse 1, establishes the right hand of God as the proper place for the Messiah. I want you to notice another important detail here. Look at verses 32 and 33 again. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now keep that in mind, and real quick, look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 17. What did Joel prophesy? And in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I, God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So do you see what Peter is doing? He is connecting the dots for his audience that will lead them to one undeniable conclusion. Jesus has been exalted to a place of absolute glory, power, and authority in the universe as the dispenser of the spirit He is acting with the Father, sharing fully in his heavenly rule. In other words, people assembled 
before Peter, Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. His power is infinite and his kingdom is eternal. This is your Messiah. And you crucified him. In verse 34, Peter reminds his listeners that David, David didn't ascend to heaven. No, he was pointing to someone else. And again, who was it? Well, there should be no doubt at this point. The crucified and risen king who is sitting at the Father's right hand, exercising infinite power, pouring out the Holy Spirit, and ultimately defeating every enemy of God. Verse 6, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter set before his people the person and work of Jesus, and in so doing, he is forcing them. He is forcing them to personalize everything he said. Friends, this is not, this is not a sermon for their consideration. It is a declaration of truth that demands a response. They have to decide. What will they do with this? Peter has preached in the spirit of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. The happy, happy are all those who take refuge in him. Oh, friends, this is personal. What, what will you do with Jesus? You are in the crowd. Jesus has been presented before you. And what will you do? Like Rembrandt placing himself near the nail-scarred feet of Jesus, you must see yourself in the crowd before the cross as well. But will the cross be a place of judgment and damnation for you? Will you turn away from Jesus and declare yourself to be king? Or will the cross be a place of rescue? Will you kneel before the true king, turn from your sin, and receive his grace? The Messiah's death reveals his love. The Messiah's resurrection reveals his power, and the Messiah's rescue reveals his grace. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table, some of you, some of you need to stop running. It's time. It is time to humble yourself and plead with God for mercy. So let me, in closing, as we Prepare our hearts. Let me put before you the staggering love of the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. Others here need to be freshly reminded of what you have already experienced. You need to be reminded that you did not rescue yourself. This was God's doing from beginning to end. Jesus took your place. Jesus took your place, and he alone deserves your worship. So let 
this reminder, kindle your devotion to Christ. Please listen as we prepare for the table. Jesus Christ put himself in the place of sinners. The unbearable weight of their guilt was imputed to him, and he sank under it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the love of God. Substitution is the very meaning of love. Look at him. By faith, look at him hanging there on his cross. What is he saying to you by his sacrifice? Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, for everything is now ready. Come to me, and I will make you an everlasting covenant. Look at him. By faith, see his dying love for you. What is it worth? His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of that cross, but it doesn't lie there in waste and loss. It flows out toward us. Guilty, sad, us. His blood flows out toward a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. His blood washes her shame clean off her then that shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus and is no longer her burden to bear. His blood flows out toward a man held in bondage to lust. He has discovered too late that there is no comfort there, only emptiness and self-hatred. But the blood of Jesus flows out to that man cleanses him entirely and takes that painful wrong back to the cross where Jesus suffers for it as his own wrong, freeing that man forever. You see, the blood of Jesus is flowing out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair and giving them a whole new life. Jesus is saying to you right now, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see the love of Jesus displayed in his death. Give us eyes to see the power of Jesus displayed in his resurrection. Give us eyes to see the grace of Jesus displayed in his rescue. Father, we read of the account 
in Acts 2. And as Jesus was presented before the people, that presentation, that declaration of Jesus demanded a response. We cannot ignore Jesus. We ignore Him to our own eternal peril. Father, I pray even in this moment for someone who is here who has not yet come to Christ in faith that the Holy Spirit even in this moment would open their eyes to bring them to repentance to grant them the gift of faith so that they might believe and be rescued. For the brother or sister who is here this morning struggling, Holy Spirit, apply, apply afresh the truth of Christ, the substitute. Keep all of us from flippantly considering the death of Christ, especially as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Friends, I invite you to continue in prayer.